Hello and welcome to the second part about the discussion of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Okay, so aside from that tangent off faith, <laughs> if we can get back to the Book of Mormon and the Absolutely, translation. Yeah. <laughs> um, so another, this is one of the biggest problems I see with the Book of Mormon is that, and this translation, is that so many ideas that were written about in the Book of Mormon and different motifs that were that are in the Book of Mormon are also in books that were published prior to the Book of Mormon. For instance, uh, I don't know if you've heard of the book of or the book called View of the Hebrews. Uh, I have not, but I've probably heard someone explain the book before. Okay, so I View of the Hebrews, yeah. So View of the Hebrews was written by Oliver Cowdery and Oliver Cow and that was in Vermont, Vermont and uh, Pulteney, the Rutland County. And Oliver Cowdery was a leader of a church in Vermont and also uh, what's his name? Martin Harris, one of some, one of the people who uh, transcribed what Joseph Smith was saying when he was uh, translating the Book of Mormon, uh, he was a member of Oliver Cowdery's church. Mm-hmm. And so Oliver Cowdery wrote this book called, of course, View of the Hebrews. And it was, there are two editions. The first edition was published in 1823, and the second edition was published in 1825. And very importantly, for context, the Book of Mormon was translated in 1830 and was put out in 1830. So here, for for the rest of you guys who are listening, I will read just a number of things that are uh, that are shared with the Book of Mormon again in 1830 and the View of the Hebrews in 1823. These are all the things that are similar: destruction of Jerusalem, the scattering of Israel, the restoration of the ten tribes. Hebrews leave the old world for the new world. Religion a motivating factor. Migration and a long journey, encountering seas, quote unquote, and of, quote, many waters, unquote, the Americas as uninhabited land, settlers journey northward, encounter a valley or a great river, of a great river, rather, a unity of race, Hebrew, settled the land and our ancestral origins of American Indians, Hebrew, the origin of Indian language, Egyptian hieroglyphs, a breastplate, Urim and Thummim, prophets, spiritually gifted men, and transmitting generational records, and a whole slew of other things that are, that are equivalent and similar. And I think one of the main ones is the Messiah visiting the Americas. Mm-hmm. Like that's one, that's the, really, I, I see the main point of the Book of Mormon is, is giving the account of Jesus coming to the Americas and all of these things, all of these ideas and motifs are shared between the book of Mormon and the view of the Hebrews. And again, we must keep in mind that the view of the Hebrews was written seven years before the book of Mormon was written. And, uh, Martin Harris was a member of the church of Oliver Cowdery, the person who wrote the view of the Hebrews. Mm -hmm. So to t- so, 
how do you reconcile this? There are, there are all of these different things that are similar between the Book of Mormon and the view of the Hebrews. So the, the thing that I see in this is that there's a possibility, a strong possibility of Joseph Smith copying the ideas that were written about in the view of the Hebrews. So how do you reconcile this? In the New Testament, according to the four Gospels, there was a man called John the Baptist that um, was prophesied to lead the way for Christ. He had followers. He technically had his own church. But once Christ came through his ministry, John the Baptist said that I can no longer preach, I can no longer follow his church, you ha- you like must follow exactly what the Messiah said. Mm-hmm. And I think this is true in many things that many people are prepared for, people will come before a bigger event. And so the first one being Martin Luther, uh, we believe, or I definitely believe, most of the prophets have said in their own personal opinion that he was spiritually guided to lead a religion reformation so that it'd be allowed for the church to be established in Americas. But I also believe that people that have helped Joseph Smith would have been prepared in similar ways of been experiencing visions of truths, of knowing of these things before it came so that they would have a firm foundation in the gospel. And I think an important part is that Oliver Cowdery and Martin Harris are, were both members of the church after the restoration because they knew of the truth that was being preached in the church. So are you saying that, um, I guess the reason is because like, I guess you'd cite God as being consistent, being consistent and also, preparing people for for the truth and i believe that he he definitely had some spiritual revelation given to him and this is a big belief we have that revelation doesn't have to be just given to a prophet it can be given to anyone and so this is one of these things that could include this revelation wouldn't that possibly be a post hoc rationalization post hoc meaning after the fact rationalization because first we had the view of the Hebrews and we didn't have the Book of Mormon. So no one knew about that. Mm-hmm. And this this view of the Hebrews was just a novel written by Oliver Cowdery where he just put all this information out there about uh, this one storyline that he made up himself. And then after after the Book of Mormon is published and written and people believe in the church, then they just decide, hey, Oliver Cowdery was just given this by God just to get him ready. So wouldn't that just be a rationalization of saying that, hey, this, even though this guy didn't know that he was just writing essentially the storyline of the Book of Mormon then to say that, hey, this is, this was given to him by God. Now, for me, though, if I was a man that had made up something and someone else came and plagiarized it, I would have called that guy out. I would have, I would have never followed him or believed that he was a prophet. And I think the important thing that Oliver 
became a member, but he also became a counselor in the presidency. He was very important, but he also believed that Joseph Smith was a prophet. And this is something that we may never know, but he could have received further revelation from Heavenly Father being that um, that these visions that he did have were the the inspiration for his story was actually based off of the Book of Mormon or actual events, and it was helping him become an important member of the church. But it could have been a multitude of things, but I think it it speaks loudly that he did become a member and he stayed faithful for quite a, a while, and that he didn't ever once come out saying that Joseph Smith plagiarized him. So, are you kind of saying that like? Um, the view of the Hebrews and everything, uh, I guess, like all the events revolving around that time for Oliver Cowdery uh, was set up for him to join the church. It, it could have been. Um, that, that That's just one opinion that yeah. um, I could have. But, I mean, there could be a multitude of things that went down and happened. Yeah, um, of course. Obviously, we don't know the, the straight facts of what happened. But, yeah. but maybe. Um, yes, but maybe. Could have happened, yeah. Okay. Um. So another source uh, that was written around the time, this was actually published in 1819, and it was a textbook written for New York State school children. Um, the book is called The Late War Between the United States and Great Britain. Um, I'm just going to read off uh, the fir- a portion of the first chapter. Now it came to pass in the 1812th year of the Christian era, and in the 30 and 6th year after the people of the provinces of Columbia had declared themselves a free and independent nation. The next excerpt, that in the sixth month of the same year, on the first day of the month, the chief governor, whom the people had chosen to rule over the land of Columbia. Third excerpt, even James, even James, whose surname was Madison, delivered a written paper to the great Sanhedrin of the people who were assembled together. Fourth excerpt. And the name of the city where the people were gathered together was called after the name of the chief captain of the land of Columbia, whose fame extendeth to the uttermost parts of the earth, albeit he had slept with his fathers. And I, I myself have read um, probably like straight through half of the Book of Mormon. Mm-hmm. Um, and that sounds a lot like the Book of Mormon, not in saying what the context is, but the wording. Mm-hmm. And I, this also reminds me very much of First Nephi, uh, the first chapter, verse four, where it, it explicitly uses the exact same language as the first excerpt of this book, The Late War. How, and additionally, just like Sean said, it sounds exactly like the Book of Mormon sounds. It uses the exact wording, it came to pass, and things of that nature. This this comes again to the point of me when I say that prophets um, translate the spirit and what they know. And being that this is a New York school book, this is probably a book that uh, Joseph Smith had read. This is kind of the, the language that he was taught in. And for him to be able to translate the spirit and the revelations into words, he's going to be using what's familiar for him. And this is something that was familiar for him. But why would, why would he use words that are familiar to him? Because he is supposed to be translating the book of Mormon verbatim from 
reformed Egyptian, exactly how it should be written. He would be using exact translations of said words in reformed Egyptian into English. Or else, how could we say that this is the inerrant word of God in that thing? Well, this kind of this kind of goes through back through a cycle. But if we if we think about this in a different context, if he was um, if he was speaking French, he would have to translate the spirit in French as best as he knows. But when you have a feeling, and it's not like he just for me personally, when I, when I think about it, it's not that he just saw the word in his head, but he, he felt it in his heart and felt the translation. And that's why he didn't need the book of Mormon in the room, but it's going to be words that he knows and language that he uses. But as long as the ideas get across, that is the most important thing. So then these are his own ideas then being translated from one thing to another, not direct, absolute, and and accurate translations, because not, it's supposed to be things that are sent to him from God. Not technically; these are these are the the Lord's ideas, beliefs, and truths translated through a man that is speaking English that he's been taught through only second grade education, and that heavenly father has given his seal of approval on so um a point we touched on earlier was that joseph smith um was he had to have been surrounded by either of these texts at some point in his life right right and because i mean if it's a school textbook then it probably got around in new york um so would you say that it's possible that he used it as um I don't want to say an outline, but use it as a form of reference for all of his writing. So if he did write these of his own accord, and if he did have appropriate time, um, then he could have used it to write in a way that sounded older than it was and um, more archaic. And people do cite that the Book of Mormon refers or has chiasmus in it, which is, um, for those of you who don't know, is... uh, like a mirroring of wording in texts. And theologists often say that Chiasmus um, is seen in uh, older religious texts like the Bible and uh, the Torah and whatnot. So my question is, do you think that it's possible that Joseph Smith used these books, the late war, the view of the Hebrews, um, the Bible itself, and... um, as a fo- as a point of reference in order to replicate similar wording and uh, mimic the the features of religious texts if it was it was not joseph smith using it it was heavenly father using it as a tool to guide joseph smith in the right path so my question would be not i'm not saying that this is the case mm-hmm. again i'm coming at this from a prosecuting attorney's standpoint but could these things, these ideas that are written in the view of the Hebrews, the late war, the King James Version of the Bible, and other things, like I could get to this, the children's books that Joseph Smith had in, in his possession that also had a lot of similarities with the things that are talked about in the Book of Mormon. Could these things really be plagiarisms? 
is it possible for them to be plagiarisms? I don't believe it's for me personally, I don't believe, and the church does not believe that it's plagiarism, but I do think that we're underestimating or leaving out a variable, which is Heavenly Father, which places certain things in our lives for a reason. And if these things are placed in his life so that he can better translate with his second grade education, then that is what's going to be put in his path and given to him by Heavenly Father for him to succeed, because Heavenly Father wants the Book of Mormon to be translated. He wants the church to be restored. He is not going to stop until it is successfully restored and the Book of Mormon was translated. So you're saying that it's possible that all these um, texts and all these events and all these people that uh, Joseph Smith encountered um, were all part of the setup to learn how to be prepared to translate this text for God, for the people. Correct. It okay. is still it is still something that he had to work at. If Joseph Smith gave up, then that would have been it. Yeah, there wouldn't have been a restored church at that time. There wouldn't have been a, a the translation of the Book of Mormon at that time. But he didn't. He had to put in a lot of work. And if that meant that he had to do certain things, and Heavenly Father had to put certain things in his path, then that's what had to be done. Okay, so there's certain obstacles required to get to where he needed to go. Correct. He does not become a genius just because Heavenly Father chooses him <laughs> as a prophet. <laughs> no, okay, yeah. I get that. Um, so that kind of leads me to my next point. So we just talked about, uh, I guess, Joseph Smith's translations of the plates, but the, another piece of, um, I guess, text that Joseph was involved with were the Kinderhook plates. Yep. These plates were excavated by Robert Wiley on April 23rd, 1843 in Kinderhook, Illinois. Um, there were several uh, members of Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints who witnessed the excavation. And what they uncovered were six bell-shaped brass plates with unknown symbols on them. Joseph Smith asked to and received the plates so that he may examine them. And he actually displayed them in his own home. There were nine citizens of the area that certified the plates were from this specific excavation site. And William Clayton wrote on May 1st, 1843, that the six plates were taken from six feet deep from a skeleton with the plates on his breasts. They have about 30 to 40 characters on each side of the plate. And Joseph Smith translated a portion and claimed that the skeleton's history was contained on the plates and that the skeleton was the descendant of Ham from Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and it received the kingdom from God. Mm-hmm. Are you? Have you heard of these plates? Yes, I have. Um, I wish I had the source material on what I um, saw about this. This was a little documentary that I saw, but I don't, so I'm going to be doing everything um, from my head. But yes, yeah. I do. I do have. Um, I do know about the plates, and I do know the two opinions of the plates. And so you can go ahead and ask away. Yeah. Okay. So um, William Clayton wrote in his journal um, regarding this event. And the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints actually converted Clayton's words into Smith's first-person voice in the text, History of the Church. The story took about took up about eight pages and supported the church's claim that inscription on thin metal plates was a valid method for record-keeping. And the church also has a publication called Times and Seasons. Um, it's a Nauvoo publishing house, which Joseph Smith acquired the previous year. And in there, I would just like to quote this, 
it says we learned there there was a mormon present when the plates were found who it is said leaped for joy at the discovery and remarked that it would go to prove the authenticity of the book of mormon which it undoubtedly will this was on may 1st 1843 brigham young also um a former prophet and Reuben Headlock, who was a mission president in 1843, visited the plates and Parley P. Pratt wrote a letter confirming that the plates were comparing the plates characters to the characters of the Book of Abraham's papyrus. Smith's journal, as written by Will- Willard Richards on May 7th, confirms that the plates were where the plates were dug from. And Smith, William Smith, was one of the 12 original apostles and used Smith's grammar and alphabet of the Egyptian language, so Gale, to compare the characters. And mm-hmm. so I guess the first point of contention is Gale has been discredited by the use of uh, the Rosetta Stone. Okay. How do you um, how do you justify Joseph Smith attempting to translate these plates? So um, the story that I have heard from um, the use of journals um, I don't know which journals exactly and how accurate they are, but the, the story that I, I also heard was that these plates were given to Joseph Smith. He used his notes that he had from um, the Pearl of Great Price and from the Book of Mormon and certain symbols. He quickly looked at one plate and he translated what he can from matching up the symbols that he has previously seen, and that is what he spoke of. Um, and I think this... His whole story blew up, especially when the the guy that claimed he excavated him said that he um, manufactured the plates himself. But the church also went on to deny that. And in 1895, B.H. Roberts, who was a general authority of the church, claimed that Fugit, um, Fugit's claim, like hoax claim, was the hoax, was the real hoax, because he waited 36 years when the church confirmed the plates to be genuine to come forth. And so the latency was his justification for, for the hoax. There was and, also a couple other things, too, was that everyone else around in that excavation, because it was not just also one man, it was a couple other non-members that were there, also had died at that time. And so he yeah. was the only living member of the excavation group that was alive. And he also had some scene pressure from... Um, the anti-Mormon um, opinions that were rising at that time in the area. Um, yes, that is true. Um, and so some of the other members were W.P. Harris, who's one of the uh, nine original conspirators, um, who was there to witness the discovery and claimed that it was honest. Um, and then another one was Wilbur Fugit, who I just mentioned, uh, admitted to James Cobb, so Brigham Young's stepson, that the plaints were a hoax and to prove that the prophecy was by way of joke. But even then, in 1965, um, or I guess you say in 18, from 1896 to 1965, there was a constant back and forth between um, both sides arguing for authenticity. And then in 1965, a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, who was also a physicist, George M. Lawrence, confirmed that the worksmanship and dimensions and tolerances of the uh, plate to be... Uh, work from an 1843 blacksmith and confirmed the fraud of the original conspirators. So the church went on for over a hundred years. It looks like just arguing saying that, that Fugit's claim was the real hoax. Mm-hmm. So how, go ahead. How, how, uh, 
I think the question still stands. How are we to believe that uh, Joseph Smith, who took, who attempted to uh, translate the plates for over a year, not over a year, sorry, for a couple months and failed to do so. And even then when the time and seasons uh, talked about in 1843, it definitely led people to, uh, led people on to think that another, I guess, testament or full translation was coming, even though that never happened. And so how do you justify the church's claim that it was true and that they pushed it for so long, but then once they met um, empirical evidence that it was not or that it was a hoax, that they backed off? I um, I will say that I heard it a little differently about Joseph Smith. I did not hear that he tried to translate it for a month. The story that I heard that he was he quickly looked at a plate and then after that he there was no there was no spiritual revelation given to him. There was no like he did not try to receive revelation to to uh, translate these plates. But even if he if he tried for a month, the the one problem that we run into is the plate that was under examination um, from. Um, multiple people that have done tests on it. Mm-hmm. That plate has actually been shown to be different, a different plate than that was actually present. Um, the plate that was used was a, a brass alloy that did the testing, and they found um, very modern etching um, techniques. But the plate's original composition, the original nine, was um, was copper. Yeah, there's a slight difference there. But it, um, it shows that the tests that were done um, to find this this kinder plate were done on a different plate. And even the symbols didn't match correctly on the plates. And the people, the scientists doing the experiments just assumed that it's hard to match scribbles to scribbles is, is what a direct quote from one of them was. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, the way I saw it was this is something that um, there's surprisingly a lot of evidence of a a very advanced Hebrew standing in the Amer- in America. There's been multiple digs that have found stuff. So to, to me, it wasn't surprising for them to find something, but Joseph Smith not worry about it because it has nothing to do with our faith. It is, it is a story. It is like finding a text in the middle of Europe about Romans. It, it's, it could consider nothing about, um, about any religious aspect at all. It wouldn't change anything. It's just a story. So for me, this is just evidence of these people with a story that was just written. And there was, I mean, many people had written things on plates as prescribed in the Book of Mormon. Um, but to, to me, it, it's just uh, another proof of that there was people here and that it shouldn't be taken for what the translation means. And if you go back to the account um, one of the accounts from one of the people said that they were so brittle that the the ring that was on that was connecting them fell apart as they excavated it. And if you try to say that he manufactured it and withered the the metal that connected the plates together before he showed it, Joseph Smith doesn't line up in time wise. There's no way to to make that metal so brittle. I mean, that it, it would crumble. Yeah, it would, that would crumble. And so, so this is, go ahead. Um, I, I just wanted to mention Joseph Smith received the Kinderhook plates on May first, eighteen forty-three, and he had he was still trying to translate them from May twenty-second until like May twenty-second, eighteen forty-four. So he had them for a very long time, but even then, you were just saying that they were really brittle. 
Um, and in 1865, uh, 18, between 1861 and 1865, the plates were reported to have been lost until one was found. And that one that you're talking about, that was a different um, I guess consistency, uh, was received by the Chicago Historical Society in 1980. And they actually allowed Stanley P. Kimball, who's an, who was a Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints scholar, to reliably test the plate and find out more. And that process that he used actually turned out to be destructive. And so that's, um, it did come up with the finding that the, that the plate had a different composition than was originally cited, but I did mm-hmm. not know whether or not they were actually the same as the original plates. But also how would we have known that if they had not done the same testing on the plates that were lost? The big thing is that um, the inscriptions don't match up exactly what with the multiple um, renderings of the original plates. The the symbols themselves are they're close, but they're not exact. Um, there are some things missing. There are some things that are completely different. And so these these changes is what we can say that okay, this is not this is not what an original plate would look like. And if you try to trace back the history of that single plate, um, it was it was sold to some collector and so it'd been really easy for someone to say i'm going to make this fake plate for this dude that likes collecting things and try to just have a scam yeah try to get a quick buck off of uh something that is regarded or was regarded as historically significant correct yeah so in on may 10th uh by the publication of a broadside in the nauvoo neighbor um a republishing of the times and seasons editorial Facsimiles of all 12 sides of the plates and a footer declaring that the contents of the plates will be published um, was printed, I guess, was printed in, in the publication. So how, wait, what are you talking about? What are you referring to when you're saying that those, the plates, the one that was examined most recently was different than the ones back then? Are you saying that it didn't line up with any of these at all? Um, there is one that they say they believe that it resembles, but um, like the actual etchings itself are very different from what the pictures that we have. Um, uh, they, if you, you can, I'm actually looking at it right now, and there's a lot of a lot of different symbols that just are not are not matching up at all. Okay. Um. So if they, if these plates, as confirmed by the. Uh, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is actually a hoax. And they confirmed this in August of 1981 in Ensign that they confirmed the hoax. Why would Joseph Smith have spent a year, um, slightly over a year, trying to translate these plates and then also um, use his own alphabet that he used to translate the book of Abraham? Why would he do those things for so long and try that if it was fake to begin with? You know, it's, Joseph Smith made a lot of mistakes. Um, in no way was he a perfect person. Mm-hmm. Um, we can even see that in DNC where he, um, Heavenly Father, commends Joseph Smith to repent multiple times. Um, and so this is just one of another things that Joseph Smith probably spent way too much time on, and he could have been spending time on other things. Um, it's, just, it's just another thing that um, Joseph Smith probably regretted later in his life that mm-hmm. he spent so much time on. And if, if it was all a hoax, then I don't think it necessarily would um, have any decredibility on Joseph Smith himself because he still is a man and he still 
has opinions. And when he saw the plates, he probably was like, this is my opportunity to prove to everyone that I, I am a seer. And at that moment, he became bloated and not humble and could have um, lost that that skill as a seer. And Heavenly Father stripped that power away from him for if he had that idea of wanting to do this to prove everyone wrong. Wouldn't that be kind of convenient? Just strip, Just saying that Heavenly Father stripped this away just so he could fail, just because at this time he failed. Now we say, oh, J- Heavenly Father could have stripped this from him. Couldn't that just, like, how can we say that that's really true? And wouldn't that just be conven- a convenient happenstance if that were true? Right. I'm, I'm not saying that this is um, true. I, right. I honestly have no idea. That was just uh, an idea that I was thinking about because at DNC, mm-hmm. it does talk a lot about how we do lose the power of the priesthood when we use it wrongly. And so I was just making a connection from the scriptures saying that if you, we are doing it for the wrong reason, these spiritual gifts that Heavenly Father has given us will be taken away. No, so, yeah, that, I, I would say that's a good, um, I guess, application of uh, what, you, what you read and what you learn. Um, yeah. But I guess, my, I guess the next question that I would have for you is, Joseph Smith, he had the plates, he, tra- he tried to translate them for over a year, and you were mentioning earlier that God would God set up several people to get on what's what you would consider the right path to go on the righteous path, right? But how come he didn't curb Joseph Smith this time? How come he didn't stop him from doing this if he knew that this would lead to, I guess, uh, a scandal within the church for over a hundred years? That's a good question, and I wish I could ask him directly that question. <laughs> I wish I could. I wish I could just ask him face to face. But I guess there's a lot of things that people say that, um, like this was leading people in the wrong direction, or this was wrong mm-hmm. and this was fake. But he still let it happen. Mm-hmm. And um, Heavenly Father lets bad things happen to us. Heavenly Father lets good things happen to us. Heavenly Father lets all these things happen to us. And you know, these plates probably stirred up a lot of excitement in Latter-day Saints, and they were probably pretty beaten down at that time. And so I think it would be nice to have some hope of some something positive happening. Um, but then it does lead to a scandal. And so it's kind of like, what is Heavenly Father trying at this time? But I think it, uh, the biggest thing that Heavenly Father does with everything is, is, is he does test our faith with things like this to see if we are going to back down and not ask him ourselves or seek the answer through the spirit, or if we're just going, if we are going to do that. But doesn't that go against what you mentioned earlier, um, which you were saying that greatness in the moment will lead to suffering later. So if God allowed that to happen to allow for this greatness, he therefore had to allow for the suffering for over a hundred years. Oh yeah. Heavenly father lets Satan, attack us constantly and it's one of his ways of teaching us things it is he let his own begotten son take the full force of satan multiple times and it was it was to test him to make sure to prove that his holiness and to and to grow and become um and be able to make the atonement and so heavenly heavenly father can is is one of those parents that will let you burn your hand on a stove (laughs) for you to learn yeah, and so if so, it means letting the Satan go, if Satan's going to take every inch he can, and Heavenly Father is going to let him take that inch. So it, it's definitely um, 
I would definitely say in all my lessons with missionaries that the idea of, uh, I guess, learning through mistakes and stuff, it, it's going along with that idea within the church. Right. Jesus Christ, Holy Saint. So I think this leads to, I think we, we had brought up the book of Abraham mm-hmm. just a couple times here. And this is another uh, point of contention with uh, scientists, Egyptologists, and Joseph Smith himself. So, essentially, the, according to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, correct me if I'm wrong, please, because I don't mm-hmm. want to be leading people astray here. But uh, essentially, this is the the Book of Mormon, or not the Book of Mormon, sorry, the Book of Abraham uh, was telling the story of from a facsimile that was telling about what was happening to Abraham in this situation. And there's a facsimile that is on, if you, if you want to look it up, the CES letter, page 39, um, that gives an account of the facsimile that was translated by Justice Smith that later became the, uh, uh, the book of Abraham. So uh, in this facsimile, the, there is number one, if you're following along, it is said to be the angel of the Lord. Number two uh, is supposed to be Abraham lying and being fastened upon an altar where he's lying down. And then the number three is a figure standing up and it's supposed to be an idolatrous priest of Elkanah, mm-hmm. essentially. So, so this is all written and this was all translated into the book of Abraham. But this all falls down quickly when Egyptologists get their hands upon this facsimile they egyptologists who had been studying facsimiles like these for decades came to find came to have their own ideas of what this is is number one that i said was the angel of god of the lord was actually the spirit of ba or hor a a deceased fellow Mm -hmm. rather than the angel himself and the figure two who is supposed to be Abraham fastened upon an altar was the deceased. His name was Hor. This was a, um, I think a, uh, one of the leaders in Egypt, Hor. Mm-hmm. And number three was supposed to be the idolatrous priest of Elkanah, but it's actually something called Anubis, not the idolatrous priest of Elkanah. Mm-hmm. And, there are a lot of other things that were said about this. Like the Joseph Smith said, this was Abraham in Egypt. Mm-hmm. When in reality, this is the libation table bearing wines, oils, etc., which is common in Egypt. And also there's number nine. If you're again, following along, it says that Joseph Smith was saying that this was the idolatrous God of, of the Pharaoh. When in reality, according to the Egyptologists, this is the god Horus and not the god of Pharaoh. So when when actual Egyptologists get their hands upon these facsimiles that Joseph Smith himself said to have interpreted and was made into the book of Abraham, they said none of their findings aligned in any way, shape, or form with Joseph Smith's translation and interpretation. So, so yeah. how can we... Yeah, go ahead. So I'm glad you mentioned this. Um, 
what you said was true. Um, mm-hmm. The facsimile shown um, are actually the Book of Breathings, Papyrus. These are uh, the Book of the Dead or stuff that's always buried with um, mummies. It has always been found buried with mummies. The problem becomes is that this is actually not the complete papyrus that Joseph Smith was translating from. This was what most Egyptologists call a cover. A lot of times when uh, they have papyrus, they have what they call a cover papyrus, which could be completely different than the topic of what's actually within the book itself or within the papyrus. And we can find that technically he wasn't, we, we make this connection with this facsimile and this is something that I believe um, needs to be fixed, needs to be updated, because these facsimile are not the ones that are portrayed. Because in Joseph Smith's um, notes, this, these facsimile that he was translating from, and these words that he was translating from, were in red ink. Whereas the facsimile that we have posted, the facsimile that has survived the fire that was that burned a lot of, um, that burned the facsimile, the whole papyrus, um, is black. And so he was translating from a completely different portion of the papyrus than the actual ones that we show and only the actual ones that we have. And this is, this is like his actual journal says that he was translating from the red. And um, I do think this is a mistake in the church that we have connected this, this book of the dead with these um, findings because that's all we had. And I do believe that this needs to be um, redefined. I, I feel like the, the facsimile itself should just be removed from the standard works because um, it is it is not what Justice Smith translated at all, and that's when these these contentions come where the people like people actual Egyptologians are like this is not this is the book of the dead, and but thankfully um, some even non LDS have brought up how that could have just been the cover and then looking through his notes have found that it is not exactly what has written and. If you look at the Pearl of Great Price, it is actually a long document, um, a sure. long book. Um, it's it's two books, actually, technically kind of a third one that's only um, read in temples. Um, and so it, it, there's no way that these two facsimile were the only ones translated for sure. um, the whole book of the Pearl of Great Price or the Book of Abraham. Right. But I think that there still is a problem there, even if these aren't the only two parts that were translated into the book of Abraham, this was translated. This was indeed interpreted. This is what we have that was in actuality interpreted by Joseph Smith. There are sources to back that up. And the interpretations and the translations that Joseph Smith attributed to these facsimile are absolutely wrong. Like there, it is clearly the, the angel of the Lord in this situation is clearly not that. It is clearly the spirit of Ba. Right. One of the one of the idols of the Pharaoh is not the idol of the Pharaoh. It is it is a, a uh, an Egyptian god. Like how can we reconcile this when this is an actual interpretation? This is what Joseph Smith did have. He did have these, but I think that the the thing was is that um, that the church took. Joseph Smith's notes, and after the fire, and after Joseph Smith had died and taken these facsimile that were left, and they believe that this was the connection that he was talking about. When, if you look at the exact notes when he says this is like what he was translating, there are very distinct differences in the actual facsimile that he describes in the ones that are shown in the Book of the Dead. 
And so people have made the connection because it's easy to just say that these are the ones translated because here's like the different connections. But when he's describing them, there's also differences from the Book of the Dead, very different distinct symbols and pictures than the Book of the Dead, which would lead us to presume that it's a different um, facsimile that he was translating that is is very similar to the appearance in some of the Book of the Dead, but it is very distinct in difference and, and meaning. Hello everybody, this is Emmanuel, and I am recording this after the original recording of the episode to provide a very, very important point of clarification to a mistake that I made uh, in this episode. I accidentally said that The View of the Hebrews was written by Oliver Cowdery, uh, one a friend of Joseph Smith and also somebody who joined the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints um, after Joseph Smith essentially founded it. In actuality, the man who wrote The View of the Hebrews, his name was Ethan Smith, uh, no relation to Joseph Smith. Ethan Smith was a minister in Vermont at a church where indeed Oliver Cowdery uh, went to. Uh, he wrote The View of the Hebrews, and it is important to understand that he never joined the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints at any time after the Book of Mormon was written and the church was established. Again, it was not Oliver Cowdery who wrote The View of the Hebrews, but instead it was Ethan Smith who wrote The View of the Hebrews. 